Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 17. And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land upon whereest thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in thee and thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest and will bring thee again into this land and will not leave thee until I have done all which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not." And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray Thee now that You would open up Your Word unto us, that we might have a a big picture of Thy plan of salvation in a more comprehensive way. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm actually not going to talk very much about what we read here in Genesis chapter 28, but I'm going to use it as a springboard to talk about other things associated with world events and what Israel, national Israel, means to the Lord, what it means to us, and what spiritual Israel means to the Lord and means to us. And the reason I'm going to use this as a springboard is because there's interesting language here in verse 14 and verse uh, 15, actually 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father. The fact that he calls Jacob, um, or rather he calls Abraham Jacob's father is interesting. It's his grandfather. But you're going to find that language throughout the scripture that Abraham is referred to the father of national Israel. And he's also referred to the father of those that walk um, according to faith. And so this is a reiteration again of what we have read in other places. And he says here, the land whereon thou liest to thee will I give it and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That includes national Israel. They are going to be blessed through the seed of um, Jacob here. And he talks about how he's going to bring Jacob back to the land there that he's promised to him and his seed. And yet we know that Jacob dies in Egypt. So clearly there's something bigger in view here, something broader in view that we uh, should appreciate when we look at the large body of scriptures. So my desire this morning is that we would have a a broader, more comprehensive uh, appreciation of a lot of the things that we read in scripture. Um, As I'm talking to us this morning, I'm going to cover... This is a cannon shot, and I'm really hoping this doesn't turn into a tossed salad, so I'm kind of warning you ahead of time. I did... A number of years ago, have a um, a teacher. I took a class in music appreciation, and he described listening to a piece of music like Beethoven, any of his symphonies. He described it as looking at a master work piece of art, but through a vertical slit that moves slowly from the left to the right. 
You don't appreciate what you hear at the end unless you've heard things at the beginning. And when you're listening to things at the beginning or looking at the painting in the beginning, you've got to hold those things in your heart until you get to the end because then you begin to get a composite um, view and understanding of what the piece of artwork is. And so it is with music. You can only hear one piece at a time and you've got to keep that in your, in your heart as you move through the particular um, composition so that as a whole you can understand it. For me, reading the Bible is the same way. I'll be in a portion of scriptures and I'll take it to heart, I'll meditate on it, and then I'll get somewhere else in the Bible and I'll go, oh, I see that sheds light on what I read earlier or something I'm reading earlier sheds light on what I'm gonna read later. And so we have to keep that in view as I'm sharing some things with you about um, world events and how we might uh, view those things. Now, when we see the things that are going on in Israel and the current um, distress they're under, um, it should be obvious to, to us that God is not done working with the Jews, meaning he's not done working with national Israel. I would not characterize the attack as a signpost like a lot of the folks on YouTube are, and so I make mention of YouTube because a lot of times that's the first place we go. What is happening or what does this particular person have to say about what is happening over there? After we exhaust that, and we do that because it's easier. It's always easier to read a commentary than it is to open the Bible and get on your knees and ask the Lord to open it unto you. It takes years of study and years of God opening the Bible to us that we can appreciate the things that are therein. As far as a signpost and a timing of things, the mark of the beast has not yet happened, and the Lord talks about that in Revelation 13, 17. And so um, we can appreciate that. God's got other things that are going to need that need to be fulfilled before he comes. So we don't need to be have our eyes glued over there like he's coming tomorrow, he's going to come, that this is going to be a, a run-up to the final battle, but it's you know, there are things that are going on in Israel that we should appreciate just in a general context that, that in God is not done working with his people. Now, I have struggled with eschatology um, over the years because there are certain portions of it that, as people relate it to me, does not comport with my framework of uh, an appreciation of Scripture. If something doesn't fit into the box that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I will reject it. Uh, whether I understand it or not, I reject it because I know that salvation is only by God, by his grace, um, through faith alone in Christ alone. So if it doesn't fit into that, I reject it. I reject dispensationalism wholly. I disagree with it, and I, and I reject it um, because it doesn't comport with salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So... There are a lot of scriptures in the Bible that I've, I've read in the past, but I tend to ignore, and I've read commentaries on them, which are written by dispensationalists, and they have one, they hold it to a certain view, and they make their case, you know, from scriptures across the Bible that I don't agree with, and because it doesn't comport with salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, so I reject it all. So while I'm ignoring these scriptures and pretending like God has got nothing to do with Israel, I'm ignoring the obvious. They are, in fact, over there. That cannot be ignored. It reminds me of the occasion in 1 Samuel 15, 14, when Saul has been told to destroy all of the Malachites. He's been told to destroy all the men, the women, and the children, and all of their cattle. Told to destroy it all. And so when Samuel does come to him, um, he says, I, I've destroyed it all. And then Saul says, or Samuel says, what meaneth then this bleating of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? You're telling me you've destroyed it all, and yet I can hear the cattle in the field. What, what is that, what's that all about? So 
Well, we might be ignoring the fact that God, uh, or disagree with the fact that God is still working with Israel. They exist as a nation, so they can't be ignored. So I'm chastening myself in my um, ignorance and my ignoring certain things. Now, the Muslims comprise 1.8 billion of the world's population, according, according to the things I looked up online. That's 24% of the global population. Of the land mass that they hold, they hold 29 million square kilometers of this earth. The Jews, on the other hand, are 15.2 million globally, approximately 7 million of which live over there on that tiny postage stamp of Israel, which is comprised of about 20,000 kilometers. Now, keep in mind, about 7 million Jews are over there, and just so you have an appreciation about what happened during World War II, um, the Nazis killed about 6 million Jews. That's a lot of Jews were killed in northern Western Europe, where the Nazis were. So the ratio of Muslims to Jews is about 120 to 1, and the land ratio is about 14,000 to 1 in terms of what the Muslims have versus what the Jews have. And yet, there they are in Israel. You can't ignore it. So how can they be? How can that be that those people are back in the land? Well, when you read in scriptures, God says several times in the Bible that he will scatter them, and he also says that he will gather them from the four corners of the earth. So I read that scriptures in there, and I'd like to spiritualize everything, and I do a lot of that because this Bible is essentially a spiritual book teaching about Christ and his gospel, but there are some things I can't ignore, like what are those 7 million people doing over there on 20,000 square kilometers of land? Scripture tells us that they were taken into exile by the Assyrians in 722 BC. That would be the 10 northern tribes were taken by the Assyrians. The tribe of Judah, including Jerusalem, were taken by the Babylonians in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar overthrew the city and the temple. And we know that they returned to the land according to God's promise, but they didn't come from the four corners of the world. They came from Babylon or they came from where Assyria was. Now, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12 says that God will, quote, gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So I can easily spiritualize that in the light of what it says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31. In Matthew 24, 31, it says, speaking of Christ, he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, I would characterize that as the last trump. When he blows that trump, it's over, and everybody is going to be gathered into Christ that are wherever they are. But of a truth, he is gathering people into Christ today through the preaching of the gospel. We, people from every kindred, nation, tribe, and tongue, are being gathered into Christ. And so, like I said, I'm very comfortable understanding that in a spiritual context. But I wonder if both of these could be true. God uses all sorts of uh, things in the physical world with spiritual parallels to help us appreciate the meaning of the spiritual parallel. So one I can understand in a physical context and the other I can understand in a spiritual context. What we see in the one, we can know and appreciate that it is true in the other. The Bible is full of physical realities teaching spiritual truths. God says that very plainly about Hagar and Sarah about them being allegories of the two covenants. In their lives and the things that happened, God is teaching us the gospel and teaching us about spiritual truths 
rooted in physical realities. He gives names to physically, um, to physical geographic locations that have spiritual meaning that we would appreciate it. The Jordan River, Jordan means their fall. Where do they go? They go into the Sea of Galilee, and then it descends on there into the Dead Sea. And who does he um, have in, at the Sea of Galilee? Why, he has fishermen whom he will teach to be fishers of men. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on the planet Earth. The God, is, God is teaching the gospel through the geography. Physical realities teaching about spiritual truths. So I find that very interesting, and we'll talk more about that later. But uh, the question came up last week. Why do we care what happens to the Jews? And one of our sisters answered that very well, and I appreciate that. Why do we care what happens to the Jews? Well, God tells us very clearly in Deuteronomy that they are his chosen people. And that's known globally. Everybody knows the Jews are God's chosen people. But what does that mean, chosen people? I'm going to read Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, because it says they're chosen there. Deuteronomy 7, 6, we read, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he sware unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of the bondman from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, those are physical truths. He did deliver them from the house of bondage from um, Egypt. Now, what I appreciate with this is this is perfectly parallel and comports with what we read in 1 Corinthians with respect to what he has done with his elect. He says... um, Because the foolish of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. And here's the reason, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So we find uh, perfectly parallel language between Deuteronomy, why he chose a particular people, and why he chose a particular people unto salvation in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In both cases, it's, he's talking about the, um, the fact that they're not a mighty people, they're not wise, you know, according to the world, they're not mighty in the flesh. And so we have a physical reality teaching about a spiritual truth about God choosing them, about who he chooses and why he chooses them. So I wonder how much glory God gets when he chooses a Christian. Well, I know in, a, in, a, in the broad context, in the spiritual context, he gets much glory because we are all... Um, sinners and were totally depraved when he chose us. But the people across the street, it doesn't mean a thing to them. You know, they look at me and they go, he's a knucklehead. <laughs> you know, there's no glory in there as far as I can see it from God's perspective because I didn't go out, you know, um, and do live a debaucherous lifestyle at one point and then suddenly I started, you know, um, walking um, older women across the street, you know, and doing things like that. They don't have any of that... Um, 
perspective to see what God has done working in my life. Now, my family might know, but, but they don't know. So there's some glory in that. But you can look over at national Israel and see a people that have been beaten up for centuries, and yet they still exist. People that are overwhelmingly outnumbered, and yet they're parked over there in national Israel. They did come back, as God said they would come back. God, I think, gets a lot of glory in that. So God has chosen a physical people, a physical nation to work with to manifest his glory. And he makes that clear throughout scripture about how they are to shine his glory into the world. And Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem, is going to be the city where that's supposed to take place. He says that he's going to place his name there. And he did place his name there. He had a nice temple built there, Solomon's temple, and the glory of the Lord was supposed to shine from there. I mean, it was architecturally, it was absolutely stunning. It was overlaid and inlaid with gold, inlaid with jewels. Floor, I think, was covered with gold over cedar. I mean, it was absolutely stunning. So um, God has chosen a certain people to manifest his glory to the world, a people that um, should have been wiped off the face of the earth centuries ago, but yet that has not happened. Now, again, this has to do with why do we care? Well, because they're the God's chosen people. Um, He's chosen to manifest his glory uh, to the world through them, which he did certainly through the birth of Christ. Christ is a Jew. He came from a Jewish genealogy, which we can see um, in the scriptures. He was literally a Jew, again, fully man, fully God. He's literally a Jew. So the Jews that exist today are literally related to him through Mary, of course. They're literally uh, related to him, and they are his literal brothers, while the elect are his spiritual brothers. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about that with respect to the Christians, that he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. Now, Christianity is intrinsically linked to the Jews from Abraham down to Christ. Romans 11.11, it speaks about how Their rejection, the fall of them, because of their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And God says to provoke them unto jealousy. So God has used that relationship. He has used their rejection as a springboard, as though he didn't really need one, but he uses it as a springboard to pour out the gospel among the Gentiles. Now, there are Christian Jews in Israel today, in national Israel today, who are under attack. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are, be, are under attack. And I don't know how many of them were slaughtered when, on October 7th when the Hamas came in and did their uh, horrific acts. Now, in the book of Romans, chapter 15, the uh, Apostle Paul is going to take a collection from the people in Macedonia and Achaia, um, Achaia to make a contribution to the poor saints which are in Jerusalem. And so... Even then, there's an empathetic view towards the Jews that are in Jerusalem because they're suffering persecution from other Jews. But again, Christian Jews in Jerusalem. He says in verse 27 of Romans 15, It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. So we know that Christian Jews are, in effect, under attack in Jerusalem, and so as Using this as an example, why they certainly have our sympathy and they certainly um, can receive um, alms from us um, to help them in um, surviving this difficult time. Now, again, looking at scriptures, we have often heard it said that the Jews rejected Jesus 
because of their understanding of Scripture, that they expected the Messiah to come in glory and reestablish the Davidic kingdom, missing all of the Scriptures that presented him as a suffering servant, missing all the Scriptures that said that he was going to come and that he was going to die on the cross, even though it is through his death on the cross that the true enemies of men are overcome, which is sin, Satan, and death. They apparently have missed all of those. Um, So I want us to appreciate, I'm speaking of myself, that I am not blind to scriptures that speak about national Israel and what God might do through them to continue to manifest himself to the world. I don't want to accuse them of blindness, and yet while myself am in blind too to certain scriptures. So let's take a look at Romans chapter 11 verses 25 and 26, because that is a verse which gets, I think, a lot of people um, disagreeing about things, and a lot of people fail to appreciate some of the simple language in there. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, it says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness, or it also means hardness of heart, that blindness in part, not wholly, but in part, has happened to Israel. He's speaking of national Israel here, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So they are blind in part until a certain time. When the Gentiles come in, they won't be blind anymore, according to what this says. In verse 26, and this is the stumbling block for a lot of people, and so... All Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now, this is interesting because this happens after the cross. A deliverer did, in fact, come out of Zion, and I'll talk about this later, because there are two Zions. There's a Zion over there in national Israel, and the deliverer came out of Zion when he went to the cross. So Christ came out of Zion. He was raised from the dead, having accomplished all that he set to do there. But there's a heavenly Zion, what we read about in Hebrews 12, 22, which we'll talk about in a little bit later. So in that parallel context, both are true. You've got a deliverer coming out of Zion on the earth and another one coming out of heaven. Now, this word so here is the stumbling block, and it's to be understood in the context of the first 11 chapters of um, Romans, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Everybody that God saves is saved in the same manner, and so shall all Israel. Now, this would be spiritual Israel, so in one verse, he has jumped from national Israel to a spiritual Israel. That's how um, everyone that is in spiritual Israel that is saved is saved in this manner, meaning by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, that we would appreciate that it means in this manner, we can flip over to John chapter 3, verse 14. In John chapter 3, verse 14, we have the exact same language used there. And so, in this context, God is talking about how Moses lifted up the brass serpent while he was in the wilderness. While he was in the wilderness, you recall that God sent fiery serpents among the Israelites because of their sin, Uh, and rebellion, and uh, whoever was bitten by the fiery serpent would die unless he looked on the brass 
the serpent upon the brass pole that Moses had lifted up. And so the Lord says here in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, meaning in this like manner, must the Son of Man be lifted up. So, it means in this manner. And how does salvation, how does, how does that apply to salvation? Well, in Isaiah 45, verse 22, the Lord says, in Isaiah 45, 22, he says, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. So back in Numbers, just as the people looked upon the serpent on the brass pole and did not perish, even though they were bitten by a fiery serpent, which typifies sin, so too is Christ lifted up on the cross. And if we look to the cross upon which Christ was, to whom our sins were imputed, then we shall not die either. So Romans chapter 11 there, when it says, and so shall all Israel be saved, he's speaking about in like manner shall all um, people be saved. So, when we get, and again, and this talks about blindness, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, then they're not going to be blinded. Now, our deacon read this morning, Zechariah chapter 12. In Zechariah chapter 12, it speaks about um, certain things that are going to happen at the end of time or the, when the Lord comes. And so there is language in there, Zechariah chapter 12 and Zechariah chapter 14, and also Joel chapter 3, that speak about what things God will do that is perfectly consistent with what we read here in Romans 11, 25 and 26. In Zechariah and Joel, um, it talks about God will pour out his spirit on the Jews and save a remnant by grace. And that ought not be uh, something that we think as strange because on Pentecost, 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives, read about this in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, God poured out his Holy Spirit on the Jews that were there for Pentecost. A couple of, uh, a short period of time after that, you can read about this in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. <coughs> It talks about 3,000 people were saved. Obviously, this God poured out, poured out his spirit on those people at that time. And then Acts chapter 4, verse 4, he did it to about 5,000 people. So we see that God has in the past poured out his spirit of grace and supplication upon Jewish people. We read about that three times in Acts. Acts chapter 2, and then we see it in Acts chapter 4. 3,000 at one time and 5,000 at another time, and all those people are in Jerusalem when he does that. Now, what God did for them, he does for everybody he saves. He did it for you, and he did it for me. He poured out his spirit of grace and supplication upon us that we might be regenerated and that we might be um, Christians. So, in this manner, in that manner that I've just spoken of, shall all Israel be saved. That is, not all of the flesh of Israel, but all spiritual Israel shall be saved in that manner. Salvation has never changed from Adam all the way down to the present. It is always by God pouring out his spirit upon a person whom he has elected unto salvation from before the foundation of the world. And I don't know how many of those people are going to be um, 
Jews in the flesh. But there are going to be them because they are part of a nation that will be blessed um, with the blessing of Abraham. Now, when people object to God pouring out his spirit of grace upon the Jews, and I include myself in this because I have objected to it in the past, and I'm going to give you the reasons why. I and others, I think, object to it. Um, the reason I've objected to God doing that on national Israel immediately before the return of Christ is there seems to be a body of doctrine, which I would call bad doctrine, that goes with it. Apparently, people believe that if God does that, that um, they believe the temple will be physically rebuilt. Um, and I don't agree with that. I don't believe the temple is going to be physically rebuilt. But let me share this with you. If the temple is physically rebuilt, it's just another sign that they have rejected the work of Christ on the cross. So I don't know what they're going to do, but I don't think God's going to let it stand, that let them build another temple. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So nevertheless, they believe that the temple will be physically rebuilt. Uh, they believe that Christ will rule from this rebuilt temple for a literal 1,000 years on earth. And I would share with you that everybody, I don't care who you are, will... Um, take some scripture literally and take other scripture spiritually and they'll flip around and nobody can agree on which scripture they'll take literally and which ones they'll take spiritually. So he's going to rule for a thousand years. So they want to take that literally. Do they hold that God only owns the cattle on a thousand hills? If they do, which thousand would that be? So I'm, I'm sharing with you that everybody does this. Everybody takes some things literal and some things spiritual. So I don't believe he's going to rule for a thousand years on this earth. For that to be true, there would have to be, and they postulate, a literal restructuring or a literal resurgence of the reestablishment of the Levitical priesthood and their offerings. A literal um, restoration of the Levitical priesthood, which would mean for you to do that or agree to that, you can have to reach into your Bible and pull out the entire book of Hebrews. You're going to have to take out the entire book of Hebrews, which speaks of the reality and the accomplished work of Christ. Um, and they would do away with that and replace the reality with spiritual shadows and types because the book of Hebrews specifically says that the, Le the, the Levitical priesthood is a type of Christ. It, it represents the things on the earth, represent spiritual realities in heaven. And Christ was the one offering, the one offering that was made for sin forever. Now, in addition to these objections, but consistent with what they postulate, that would make Christ delusional when on the cross he said, it is finished. While on the cross, he said, it is finished. And when he did so, he was making reference to that which is written in Daniel 9.27, where through the cross... Jesus put an end to the sacrifice and oblation, him being both. It says that in Daniel chapter 9, that in the midst of the week, he would put an end to those things. And he put an end to it by offering up himself. So when he said it's finished, it means he has dealt with sin and all of its consequences. The sacrificial system was over. He put an end to it. And if you couldn't get that worked out in your head, I want to use nice language here. He destroyed um, the temple and um, Jerusalem in AD 70 when he brought the Romans upon them. 
He destroyed the temple in AD 70. It's finished. I told you it was finished. I gave you, some people say 40 years. I say 38 and a half years, about 38 years. He gave them that much time to figure it out because God is gracious and he's patient and he's long-suffering. They didn't get it figured out, so he destroyed it and um, helped them to appreciate that. Now, again, as I said, if they want to postulate that it's going to be rebuilt, then it would be a manifest rejection of Christ's offering. Now, he destroyed the temple in 70 AD, but he destroyed it also in AD, um, excuse me, in BC, 586, when he brought the Babylonians down. And he destroyed it, of course, because they were apostate and had brought idols into it and were rebellious and disobedient unto him. So he destroyed that temple. But then he promised them that they would come back, and they did, and they built another temple. Um, they also postulate, and this is another objection I have to it, a final catastrophic war in which Jesus, who is God Almighty and reigning as such, physically being present, physically destroys the nations that come against Jerusalem, which, if that were true, then the world would have to be blind as to who he is on the throne, while the Jews, who were blind, would not be blind. So there's going to be, have to be a shifting of the blindness here. So the Jews would then have sight. They'd know that he's Christ Almighty, that he's God Almighty reigning on the throne. But yet everybody else would have to be blind to that because what knucklehead would come up against the God Almighty in, in any physical context, knowing you're fighting against God? I mean, nobody would, I can't see anybody do that. Man is, in fact, in rebellion against God, and they are fighting against God. But they don't do it in a physical context. God does not need to be physically present to fight for or against the Jews. He has done both throughout the history of the Bible. He is not, doesn't need to be physically present to fight either for or against the Jews. Anyone who fights against a Christian fights against God. The Lord tells us that in Matthew 25, verse 40, when he's speaking about the great uh, throne of judgment, and he says, that which you have done to the least of these my brethren, you, at least of these my children, you have done unto me. And while speaking to Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, he says something very similar. Why persecuteth thou me? Why, um, Saul, are you persecuting me, Jesus Christ? Well, he's not persecuting him uh, literally, but he's persecuting his children. He's persecuting Christians, and to persecute Christians is to persecute Christ. So, again, we can appreciate this relationship between uh, Christ reigning from heaven and working through his people that are on this earth. Now, there are several examples of God fighting on behalf of national Israel. Um, in 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, the Syrian army is besieging Samaria, and the people are starving. And so Elisha prophesizes that, you know, by this time tomorrow, you know, a, a bushel of wheat for a penny, and they all think he's crazy because they are besieged by the Syrian army. In verses 6 and 7, we read about how the Syrian army hears the sound of chariots, and they all flee. They cannot get away fast enough. As a matter of fact, they flee so rapidly that they drop all of the stuff. You know, they start dropping their weapons. They, start, they, they leave all of the food there, and they just beat feet to get out of um, Samaria. So God sends them away, gives the victory to the Israelites, who never even left the, the city, and, um, and he feeds them. I mean, it's wonder, what a wonderful uh, deliverance they've enjoyed there. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 23, uh, Jehoshaphat, who's the king there in Israel and king of Judah, is going to go to battle against the Moabites, 
the Ammonites, both of those are sons of Lot, and against Mount Seir, which are the Edomites. Well, they're a little late getting to the battle because before they can get there, uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites fight against those of Mount Seir and kill them all. And then when they're done killing the Edomites, they kill each other. So by the time uh, Jehoshaphat gets there with, with his people, everybody's dead, but the battlefield is strewn with the spoils of war and it takes them three days to pick up all of the wealth that is on the battlefield, which includes jewels and things. So God destroys their armies and leaves them by far the wealthier for it in a physical context of it. Now, one that I think um, we can all appreciate in a very um, glorifying way is in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35. The Assyrians are laying siege to Jerusalem, and God slays 185,000 Assyrians and delivers Jerusalem from the Assyrians at that time. So Jesus wasn't physically present, boots on the ground when that happened, but he indeed fought on the behalf of Jerusalem and on behalf of the Israelites. And there are many other times that we see this happening in Scripture. We see Abraham going against the Babylonians, I think, in Genesis chapter 15. He's victorious. The Babylonians have come down and swept and destroyed everybody down to and including um, the kings in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet Abraham, with a chosen number of men, uh, is victorious over them and recovers Lot and all those that were taken prisoners. Uh, we know that with respect to Moses in the land of Egypt, God sent his spirit, the angel of death, and slew all the firstborn in the land. You also see that with Gideon. God typically picks occasions and sets up a battle so that he can be glorified. So when Gideon's supposed to go to battle, you know, he starts selecting the number of people that can go to war with him. And he's like, no, that's too many people. Um, send them home. And then he, you know, he works through it and so in such a manner so that when Gideon is victorious, everybody will recognize it was God fighting for the Israelites and God is glorified in that. So again, we have examples of how God is working through a physical people to give himself uh, glory. And so in light of what we can appreciate here, God does not need to have boots on the ground to engage in any kind of a protracted engagement that might develop in the Mideast. God can fight from heaven through his people and give them the victory, though they be outnumbered 120 to 1. He talks about places in the scripture, well, one person will give flight to 1,000. God can do that. Um, Now, in all these ways... He gets himself glory. And I believe his intention is that he would get, his desire is to give himself glory so that the world will know that he is in fact the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That he is the God of the Bible. And he'll continue to do that up until the point where he reveals himself to the world on what we call the day of the Lord. And there he will reveal himself as king of king and Lord of Lords. Now, let me consider one more objection that people have to God working with national Israel. They will say that the genealogical records were destroyed in 70 AD, which is true. They were destroyed in 70 AD. So they'll say that since the genealogical records are destroyed, we don't know who a real Jew is. As though God doesn't know who a real Jew is. And if you want, they're having a Black Friday sale at 23andMe. If you're curious, if you're a Jew, you can have yourself genetically tested, and maybe they will work that out for you. God knows who the true sons of Abraham are in the flesh, and he knows who the true spiritual sons of Abraham are in the spirit. He's got that all worked out. But 
of a truth, the world doesn't really care. If they think you were going to Jew, if they think you're a Jew, they're going to want to kill you. If you're in Jerusalem and Israel right now, they're going to want to kill you and they are going to come and they are indeed attacking it there. So the loss of the genealogical records doesn't mean anything in the context of who's a Jew and who's not a Jew. It only has significance in one point, and that is nobody can come and declare themselves to be Jesus the Christ because nobody can actually, by um, a genealogical record, trace themselves back to be the son of David, son of Abraham, son of Adam. So it's meaningful in that context only, but not in the context of whether or not my neighbor's a Jew or not. If people think he's a Jew, they're going to throw a rock through his window. Now, again, let's start with the very real fact that the Jews are, in fact, over there in Israel. Now, our deacon read for us um, Zechariah chapter 12. And in Zechariah chapter 12, there's very interesting language there. In verse 1, the Lord opens with the fact that he's the one who stretches forth the heavens. He stretched it out of creation, and he's still stretching it forth now. He is the one by whom all things consist. By all things, uh, by him were made, and nothing exists that was not made by him. Now, he's telling us in verse 2 that he's going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all people round about And I would say, in my lifetime, Jerusalem has always been problematic to the world. It's always been a stumbling block um, for people and for nations. Not just roundabout, but at least certainly in our country. We're always looking over there and trying to see what's going on, trying to figure out what is happening over there. Now, when you get down to verse 10, the Lord says, clearly, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, And they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Now, that's not a verse that I can apply to myself, because I don't mourn. When Christ revealed himself to me, it was quite a joyous occasion to me. Um, I um, expect when the Lord comes and reveals himself to me, Um, that I am not going to mourn, I'm going to be and rejoice, but I ask myself, who would mourn? Who would mourn but somebody from national Israel whom the Lord has poured out his spirit of supplication and revealed himself to that person in a spiritual way? You know, they've had a spiritual awakening and a quickening just like I had, but there's going to be a little different reaction. This, I believe, happens on the day of the Lord, and they are going to mourn. Now, when you read in Revelation 21.4, and there are other places that speak about this, in Isaiah and also in um, Revelation chapter 7, it talks about how the Lord will wipe away tears. Whose tears is he going to wipe away? Those that are mourning. When it talks about people mourning here, he says in that day, in verse 11, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as of a mourning of Hadad-Rimon in the valley of Megiddo. And then he talks about how it's going to be from the greatest to the, to the least. And the, land sh- and the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart. So he's speaking of the house of David, you know, the head of the household and the youngest person in the household. So there's going to be, I think, a great collective mourning amongst those whom he converts um, when they um, appreciate that they rejected Christ and they pierced him. You recall when Jesus is uh, set before the people by Pontius Pilate, and asked whom he should crucify, they shout out collectively, let his blood be upon us and upon our children 
owning their rejection of him. And so I think there's going to come a day when they, having owned that, are going to have it revealed to them what they have done, and I believe they're going to mourn. So I would say that the Lord is going to continue to work with them, also in a spiritual context. Now, this is where I'm going to loop a little bit because I've covered some of this already. But we should appreciate when we're looking at these things that there are, in fact, two covenants. The Bible speaks of three covenants, an everlasting covenant, an old covenant, and a new covenant. And the everlasting covenant, which is spoken of most of all in Scripture, is the same thing as the new covenant. So when we read in Genesis chapter 28, verse 13, again, we see that language, to thee and thy seed, to thee and thy seed. And that's peculiar because it appears in some places but not in other places. So when you see that, that the blessing is to thee and thy seed, we know that Christ is always in view. And the Lord tells us that in Galatians chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. He's talking about Christ. In Genesis chapter 26, verses 3 and 5, and I've got to flip there real quick. In 26, verses 3 and 5, I think the Lord is going to make a similar statement to that. Verses 26, Genesis 26, uh, verses 3 and 5. It talks about here, and the Lord is speaking to Isaac, and he says to him again that he will make his seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and give unto thy seed all these countries, and on thy seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So there's a promise that his seed, the physical descendants, will possess the land. But again, there's also this promise that in the seed all nations of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 5, because that Abraham obeyed my voice, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, we talked about that, that that's obedient through Christ. And that's something that we all enjoy because we are vicariously obedient through Christ. He is obedient on our behalf. And so, because of that, um, he, we receive the cosmos. We don't receive the physical land, but we receive the new heaven and the new earth. And that would include the new Jerusalem. Um, whatever that looks like, and wherever God sets that up, because it talks about it coming down from heaven, so it's coming from somewhere to somewhere, and there's lots of allusions in the Scripture to Jerusalem in both contexts, heavenly and earthly. Um, Again, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were heirs of the same promise, and the Lord says they did not receive that promise while they were on the earth. And so I want us to appreciate that they received an unconditional covenant. An unconditional covenant. It's only conditional in the Godhead. They are simply the recipients of it. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 20, verse 2, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 5, 2, and 3. Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, and he is giving us a summary. And so Deuteronomy contains a summary of everything that's happened prior to that in terms of the walking and the calling of the Jews out of Egypt. And so he says in verse 2, and this is he's going to give them the Ten Commandments again, but in verse 2 he says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Okay, you and me here, God made a covenant with us, and he did it when in Horeb. In verse 3, the Lord made not... The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. So if I listened to that, a light bulb might have gone off in my head. Well, what covenant did he make with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that does not apply to me? And what is he doing here now? Well, the covenant he made with the Israelites in Horeb is a conditional covenant. And that covenant we've talked about in the past 
we read about in Exodus chapter 19. And in 19, verse 5, is the conditional covenant. And so conditions were meted out unto national Israel that they would do have to um, be obedient to the Lord to receive those blessings. Verse 5 of Exodus 19, this is the one that applies to them that he made in Mount Horeb that Moses is making reference to. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So God's telling Moses, this is what I want to do for you. This is... Um, a conditional covenant, if you'll do this, then this will take place. Get down to verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they said it there once. Then you get over to um, Genesis, excuse me, Exodus 24. Over in Exodus 24, they're going to reiterate that. In verse 3 of Exodus 24, all that the, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. And then down in verse 7, they say it again. All the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And then in verse um, 6 and 8, we see that uh, Moses sprinkles the altar first, and then he sprinkles the blood of the covenant on the people. So it was ratified in blood. It was signed in blood. They agreed to do it. They agreed to the conditional covenant. And there are lots of upsides to it and lots of downsides to it. So I want us to appreciate that they are subject to a conditional covenant and God will continue to work with them to help manifest certain spiritual truths according to the conditional covenant. Now, as far as these parallels are concerned, like I said, you've got a conditional covenant and you've got an unconditional covenant. And this conditional covenant, God, it speaks of about spiritual realities. It teaches about spiritual realities. In 1 Peter chapter 2, God does for us unconditionally what he was conditionally going to do to the Jews. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 5, he says, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood. So what he was conditionally going to do for them, he does for us unconditionally. Down in verse 9 and 10, he says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are to glorify the Lord in the things that we do and say, um, like the Jews were supposed to do that in the things that they did as a nation. So the spiritual reality, the unconditional reality taught about in the conditional covenant of Exodus 19 comes to fruition through the work of Christ. So two covenants there are two Jerusalems in the Bible. There's one above, then there's the New Jerusalem, and which is also called the Holy Jerusalem. That's the one that's above, and the one that is today over there in the Middle East is in bondage. That's the one below. The Lord teaches us about that in Galatians chapter 4 and also in the book of Revelation. There are two Mount Zions. There's one physically over there in national Israel, and there's one from above. And I spoke already about how a deliverer shall come out of Zion. Well, they're both true. The cross was over there in the physical Mount Zion, and the spiritual Mount Zion is in Hebrews 12, 22, from whence the Lord will come when uh, on the day of the Lord. Um, there are three temples in the scripture, really two, of, you know, a physical one and a spiritual one. Of the uh, physical temples, there was Solomon's temple, 
And that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, as I said before, in 586 BC. And then they came back and they rebuilt one that's called Zerubbabel's Temple. And Herod the Great remodeled it. And guess what? God destroyed it in 70 AD. He knocked it down again because of rebellion and rejection of him and because he had fulfilled the entire um, uh, context, spiritual context, of the Levitical priesthood and offerings. Now that's one temple, the physical one. And then there's another temple that's the spiritual one. And that, of course, is the body of believers. And that's always existed. Anybody who's ever been in Christ has been in the Christ who is the temple. And the book of Revelation 21, 22 says that. He's the temple. Now, when I read to you in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that's the spiritual temple. He says you're all lively stones built up to a spiritual household. So that is a, um, a temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter, 19, uh, chapter 6 speaks about how know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, and you are not your own, you're bought with a price. So our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. So there's a physical temple and a spiritual temple, which includes the body of Christ. Now, the dispensationalists look to Ezekiel chapter 44 as a reconstructed temple, but again, it's best understood if you tear out the book of Hebrews to understand what that means. That's a, a spiritual temple, and you'll see parallels to that and what is written in the book of Revelation. Now, as far as all the people on the world are concerned, there's basically three groups of people. Ultimately, there's two groups of people. Um, initially, there's two, and ultimately, there's two. It's the elect and the non-elect. It's Christians and everybody else, those that will be in glory and those that will be in the lake of fire. That's the ultimate division, how things are. However, here we are in the midst of the Bible today, living at a time when there are um, three peoples. You have people who are physical Jews, whose father is Abraham in the flesh. And in the book of Joshua, and also in the book of Acts, they are spoken of, physical Jews, um, Abraham is said to be the father of the physical Jews in both of those locations. Now, there are spiritual Jews whose father is also said to be Abraham in so much as they walk in the steps of faith, of faithful Abraham. And that includes physical Jews too. There are Christian physical Jews. Um, and so Romans chapter 4 uh, says in three places about how Abraham is the father of people that walk in after the faith of Abraham. Um, Romans chapter 2, we know verse 29 says that the true Jew is one inwardly and not outwardly circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. And so the third group of people here would be everybody else, which are Gentiles. So we've got uh, Jews of the flesh and Jews of the spirit, and then we've got Gentiles. Now, in John, the Lord makes a division between the uh, who really is a child of Abraham he makes the distinction who the sons of Abraham are. He's talking to the people there, um, the scribes and the Pharisees, who claim to be sons of Abraham. And he says, no, you're not. Your father is the devil. You, if you were the sons of Abraham, then you were the deeds of Abraham. But rather, you're doing the deeds of the devil. So God, the Lord makes a distinction there between those two. So we see in these parallels in scriptures, we see things written in um, Zechariah chapter 12, in Joel chapter 3. That, and things that are written in the book of Revelation, and because we're running out of time, I just want to summarize this. But you see parallel language in Joel and in Zechariah and also in Revelation chapter 19. There is going to come a time when the kingdom of heaven comes with observation. 
Heretofore, it has come without observation. The people are speaking to Jesus, and he says, hey, the kingdom of heaven comes without observation. They're standing there talking to the kingdom of heaven. They're talking to Christ, who himself is the kingdom. He is the king of the kingdom of heaven. And when the spirit comes in us, then we come into the kingdom of heaven. In Luke 17, 20, he says, when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, they asked when the kingdom of God should come, and they answered them, the kingdom of God cometh without observation. That's because it is in the hearts of the believers. But there is going to come a time when it comes with observation, when the Lord in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 talks about coming, he's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Jude chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 speaks of this also about how the Lord will come with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly. Now, when the Lord teaches the disciples to pray, and I'm speaking of the spiritual um, parallels, he says, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and earth as it is in heaven. So we have principalities in heaven and we have principalities on earth. We have war in heaven. That's Revelation 12. And we have war on the earth. We have war against the saints, those that keep the Lord's commandments. We have war on earth against uh, national Israel. So we have all of these spiritual parallels that take place in Scripture to teach us these things. So again, I'm contending that God is working with the Jews to teach us spiritual truths. And in those two wars that we see on earth and in heaven, we see that God apparently delivers both groups um, when he delivers the saints while simultaneously pouring out his spirit of grace and supplication on some portion of national Israel when he does come. Now, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, I talked about it. It says that they shall mourn when we read in um, Zechariah it's, I believe it's chapter 14. We read about how in verse 12, it says, and, they sh and this shall be the plague wherein with the Lord shall smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall be consumed away while they stand upon their feet and their eyes shall consume away in the, their holes and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. That language sounds very similar to me, what I read in Revelation 19, about how the Lord will come and destroy his enemies with the sword that comes out of his mouth. And what we read in um, was it 2 Thessalonians, where it talks about the Lord coming in a, 2 Thessalonians, coming with a flaming fire, taking vengeance upon all of his people. So I see lots of parallel language in the scripture. So what I don't want us to do is dismiss what's happening in the world today as though it doesn't have any relevance to our appreciation and understanding of Scripture. The Lord says he's going to wipe every tear away. We can read that. I think that has uh, uh, spiritual and literal connotations. Whose tears is he going to wipe away? Well, I believe he's going to wipe away those who will mourn in the house of, um, of David. So um, we'll close with that and hope that the Lord will um, open up us to us a better understanding of scriptures as we view these things in parallel, again, with the intent that God and Christ in particular would get the glory for the deliverance of his people. Amen. Amen.